Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, I am a man for the ladies. Or rather, the ladies are for me. <laughs> oh Cam, you could take me into the moonlight any day. That's right. What what an amazing line in a movie with maybe uh, five or six lines. <laughs> yeah, we've we've said about uh, half of them already. I think. Yeah, there was. I wrote down a few memorable ones. There was three. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a big bit of paper. No. You wrote really really big letters on the paper. It wasn't tough to narrow it down as to what I want to use for the intro. Sure. Okay. I've got a, I've got a couple of others to use for the outro, so don't worry. We've still got things to talk about. But Cam, it's our first film of 2024. Last week we said we're rolling the dice here, and in true Spy Hard's fashion, I think we've chosen something that everyone knows. Yes, we are going to talk this week about the 1943 World War II film, The Adventures of Tartu, starring Robert Donat, also known as Sabotage Agent, if you are in Britain. Interestingly, I really don't like the title. The Adventures of Tartu. It is a truly terrible title. Yeah. I mean, when I heard the title, first off, it does not make me think spy whatsoever. It makes me think of like a pulpy thing a la a Tarzan knockoff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's where my mind goes. I think of jungle expeditions and things like that when I hear this title. And maybe on one hand, I'm actually thankful it exists because you don't want too many titles in there that are like British agent, you know, foreign correspondent. Things like that. Sabotage agent. Yeah, sabotage agent, the alternate title. Yeah, like that's kind of like boring when you get too many of those clumped up. So I'm happy to have an Adventures of Tartu on our kind of like uh, catalog. But yeah. Well, to me, it sounded like an Errol Flynn film, like a Robin Hood film from the same era, really. That's exactly what it is. And Robert Donat may be playing that character slightly, which we'll get into. But the whole idea of it being an adventure, it just sounds like it's a, a, a frolic and I don't think anyone who was in World War II would describe it as an adventure or a frolic. <laughs> it opens with actual footage of London bombings. Yeah. And is like, are you ready for some wacky adventures with Tartu? <laughs> but they're, they're like bringing wounded people out of a hospital that just got bombed during the Blitz. And like, that's, that, ain't, that ain't fun. Although that one old lady on the stretcher who's like smoking a cigarette when they bring her out of the rubble. I was like, wow, this lady seems to be taking it pretty well. Keep calm. And carry on. That's the mm. British spirit for you there. That's the wartime spirit that got us through several wars. That's very true. Very true. And where were you, Cam? I don't know. I mean, I wasn't quite born yet. I think I was born like maybe like a year later. Um, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Uh, but um, no, I, I don't know what we were doing in Canada. I, 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 who knows? I, I actually do know what Canada were doing during the war. But this isn't a war history. We were headed over to help you guys. We'll get there. <laughs> we tried. You, you did. You did try. We are here to talk about World War Two. We are here to talk about Tartu, and I can't wait. So here is because I, as I alluded to, everyone has already seen this film. Yeah, I mean, it is clearly a fan favorite. We are everyone. Please stop with the emails and the tweets and the TikTok messages. We get it. Here you go, Tartu. The fact that you said TikTok messages and it's not even a function on TikTok that you can do that is just just goes to show that you were born a year later during World War II. I come from the land of like telegrams right. and even like carrier pigeons. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, of course, I don't need to tell you all that this film is free and available on YouTube. And there is a link in the show notes below if you want to go and watch the film first again for like the fifth time. <laughs> it's funny. It's also streaming on um, Tubi at this moment. And I sat down to watch it on Tubi last night and the quality was so terrible that I couldn't make it out. It sounded like I was in a submarine trying to hear dialogue from outside the sub. Mm -hmm. And so I popped over to YouTube and actually the YouTube version was actually quite good. There's two on YouTube that I found. One's not as good as the other. Hmm. And there's one that I think we'll link down below that's better than everything. But I would say you should rename that streaming service to Tartubi. I'll send a letter to them. I will hit them with the influx of letters that we have been receiving. Yes, uh, that won't take too long. So here is your synopsis. Far too long. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. He's here all week, folks. (laughs) The Adventures of Tartu. Stevenson, a British soldier fluent in Romanian and German, goes undercover to sabotage a German poison gas factory. But wait, there's more. British Captain Terence Stevenson, played by Robert Donat, accepts an assignment even more dangerous than his everyday job of defusing unexploded bombs. Fluent in Romanian and German, and having studied chemical engineering, he is parachuted into Romania to assume the identity of Captain Jan Tartu, a member of the fascist Iron Guard. He makes his way to Czechoslovakia to steal the formula of a new Nazi poison gas and sabotage the factory where it's being manufactured. What an adventure! (laughs) Waka, waka, waka! Um, Yeah, it's weird. Like, I was hoping with this one that you'd have, like, a really, like, colorful, like, tagline. Because often they open with, like, you know, seven seas of adventure. Things like that. Sure. I was hoping for something really flashy like that up front. But, uh, no, that was a thorough disappointment. Some of the taglines are actually on uh, IMDB. Would you like to hear those? Yeah, please. There are a couple. I'll, I'll, I'll cherry pick my favorites. Okay. A beautiful girl. A dangerous mission. Oh, you left me hanging there. I was waiting for like a third line there. No, no, that's, that was the original poster. Apparently that was what was on it. Okay. Uh, the next we have Mystery Man of the Balkans. <laughs> Who is Tartu? <laughs> what is Tartu? <laughs> How is Tartu? <laughs> Why is Tartu? When is Tartu? <laughs> right now, because his secret weapon, the most daring mission of the war. That doesn't make any sense. No, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. What's the worst one? Mm. The Balkans one is pretty the, bad. <laughs> the mystery man of the Balkans. <laughs> okay, here, okay. This is this is bad because it's not correct. Okay. If you want lots of thrills and Lots of laughs. Here is the picture for you. <laughs> Lots of laughs. Oh, that blitz. What a time. What a time. <laughs> That's insane. Why would they... I, they? That is clearly just trying to trick people into the theater. The way that sometimes they market musical movies without indicating their musicals. Uh, that is along those lines. It's it's between the Mystery Man of the Balkans or lots of thrills and lots of laughs. I will add, there's one more I missed. It's actually quite good, and I'll leave us on a positive. Okay. He lived and loved for danger alone. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. Yeah. Tartu. It's a little generic. The Mystery Man of the Balkans. <laughs> <laughs> a little generic, but it'll mm. it'll do in a pinch. 
Well, we, we've uh, added some color to Tartu there. We have, we have. And it's a black and white film. So, yucca, there you go. Yeah. Well, there you go. We've added a little color to Tartu there. But I, I guess I can dispense with the question our previous connections to Tartu because I imagine we have none. No, none whatsoever. Although a little behind the scenes for people. This was one that was added to our master list very recently. Like, very recently. I think you came across it on Twitter or something like that. And then, you know, texted me a photo of the poster and we're like, add this to the list. I think it was one that like had only been on there for maybe like a month and a half, maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, it's got, um, which I mentioned in the synopsis, Robert Donat from most famously The 39 Steps. And I think his other major film is one I haven't seen. Oh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips? Goodbye, Mr. Chips. That's yeah. the other one he's he's most well known for. Uh, this isn't particularly one of his most famous films, but yeah, we loved Donat in 39 Steps, so it's nice to see him in another spy film. Oh yeah, definitely. And he's very good in Goodbye Mr. Chips. He won the Oscar for that film for leading actor. And uh, it's kind of one of the early inspirational teacher movies. Oh, okay. Uh, but one that I think actually holds up quite well. Okay, maybe that's one to go back and check. Uh, expand my uh, Donat filmography. Donatography. <laughs> and he ages like several decades over the course of the film. So you can see in that movie there's a certain knack he has for transformation that does play an element in this film as well okay okay i mean mr chips is a different character altogether here in the uk and it doesn't blend well with the story you're telling me so we'll leave that there okay it, it's <laughs> it's nothing sordid it's oh, just okay. really not connected at all i was like what obscenities am i spewing right now <laughs> <laughs> it's, no it's fine people who know what i'm talking about and be like yeah that really isn't connected to rob Dunat. uh it's good but it's not the one so, Cam, how did this adventure get started? Okay, so let's start with the director of this film, Harold S. Bacay. I mean, it looks like Bucket, but... You have stumbled... I mean, accidentally there, Cam, you have stumbled into another British comedy because there is a Hyacinth Bouquet from Keeping Up Appearances, I think was the show. I may be getting that wrong. And she pronounces it bouquet and it's like written bucket yeah yeah so you've accidentally uh, had a whole premise of a show right there congratulations okay so we've got harold s bouquet who was a british born um, world war one vet who moved into hollywood initially as an extra and set designer before directing shorts in the 19th early 1930s and um this guy did tons of shorts like for a long time and then he jumped over and did the dr kildare films which were kind of a pulp series about a guy who solved mysteries and he did eight of those and like his career was basically shorts and dr kildare films for a long time with the odd thing interspersed but by and large kind of a studio for hire guy mm -hmm. and he did a world war ii propaganda film in 1942 called the war against mrs hadley which was more of a drama not a combat film and rolled right into Tartu. And um, this, you know, after Tartu, he was actually kind of given a shot at the big time. And he directed an A picture, 1944's Dragon Seed, starring um, Catherine Hepburn about the Japanese invasion of China. And Catherine Hepburn played Jade Tan. So I'm going to guess that one has not held up particularly well, nor is it regarded particularly highly in the uh, career of Catherine Hepburn. Because this guy only made one other film, which was a Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn romantic drama called Without Love in 45 and died the next year. It, it sounds like that film is more bucket than bouquet. 
Yeah, I had never heard of Dragon Seed. I think it was probably a <laughs> big prestige film of that time that just has evaporated into the mists. Probably for the best. Yeah. So I bring up the director first. I don't typically do that. I typically chart kind of the origins of a writer mm -hmm. first, like how the script came to be. But in this case, the two are so linked that it felt necessary. Because let's jump over to the story credit on this film. It's a writer named John C. Higgins, who is a Canadian writer, came from Winnipeg. And his career is linked to Harold S. Bouquet. They started out together. You know, he was writing shorts for him. And they continued to work together for a long time, just cranking out shorts. And he had one initial movie in 1935 called uh, The Murder Man, starring Spencer Tracy and James Stewart. You're going to hear Spencer Tracy's name a few times. And um, then went back and did several more years of shorts, so many of which were, were with Bouquet. And didn't really kind of break free of the kind of the world of shorts again until 1941 with the crime thriller The Penalty. And then moved into war propaganda films and 1942's Fred Zinneman film, Kid Glove Killer, which Fred Zinneman, for those that don't know, directed From Here to Eternity, one of the big directors of his time, also did The Day, uh, the Day of the Jackal. I, I, I do want to just uh, jump back in for a second with some hot off the presses intel. Okay. I looked up Dragon Seed. Yes. It's as bad as you think. Yes, I'm sure it oh is. Oh boy, it is truly bad. They have done a number on Catherine Hepburn here. Uh, best left forgotten. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, Harold S. Uh, Bouquet did not necessarily have the most shining of filmographies, and that one is probably pretty low on the tier even at that. Mm. Uh, I'll stick with Dr. Kildare, thanks. Although, I don't know, maybe Dr. Kildare is really racist, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, 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 maybe don't attach yourself to those without watching them Let me first. lower that Kildare flag right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. More, still, more bucket than bouquet, I remember. Uh, yeah, so anyways, that writer, Higgins, worked on the Fred Zinman film, uh, Kid Glove Killer, and then moved in from that film into Tar 2. And this was actually his final collaboration with Bouquet. He would go on and write many more years, uh, including the 1964 film Robinson Crusoe on Mars, which was a crucial film in inspiring Star Trek. What was Robinson Crusoe doing on Mars? Um, it's just basically a take on the Robinson Crusoe story, but someone who lands on Mars. Oh, okay. Very good film. Uh, so, yes, that's a story credit for John C. Higgins. And so he already is someone who has a bit of a career, like he's a long-term working writer, and they basically handed off that story or whatever version, maybe his initial draft, I'm not exactly sure, to mm -hmm. two other writers. And they are both pretty widely renowned. So the first writer was John C. Mahan, who was Illinois-born, a writer and producer, and started out on a 1931 Fay Ray film uh, called The Unholy Garden, which was directed by George Fitzmaurice, who directed The Emperor's Candlesticks a few years later. Oh, there you go. Yeah. A little spy connection. I like that. So that's sort of a modest beginning, but pretty soon he's doing things like writing the dialogue for 1932's Scarface, uh, which was a massive breakout gangster hit. He wrote for the um, Clark Gable, Gene Harlow film Red Dust. He did Gene Harlow's Bombshell. He got an Oscar nomination for Best Picture for uh, 1935's Naughty Marietta. He got an Oscar nomination himself for writing 1937's Captain's Courageous, starring Spencer Tracy, did uncredited work on The Wizard of Oz, worked on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Woman of the Year, the Catherine Hepburn film, 
And this was his follow-up to the um, not necessarily good, but quite popular Spencer Tracy, Hedy Lamar film, Tortilla Flat. What a name. Tortilla Flat. Can you imagine putting out a movie in 2024 called Tortilla Flat? If that film did come out, it would be... It feels like it's a an indie film or like a Wes Anderson film. Just completely balmy out there name that means not a lot. Yeah, I think that's probably a good summation of the movie as well. I haven't watched okay. it, but uh, yeah, it doesn't have the best of reputations. But like this guy was just like a studio pro mm-hmm. and worked many more years after this and wrote movies like Showboat, The Bad Seed, North to Alaska, a lot of big star-driven vehicles. I did think it was weird, though, when I was doing the research this week, how many times Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy came up with the credits of this film. Nice that they're connected, but not actually a part of the film. True. That would have uh, maybe lifted its you know head above water a little more. Um, the other writer on this film, Howard Emmett Rogers, New York-born, started out in the mid-20s on a film called Tin Gods, and then did... Some things of note, uh, he wasn't as big a name, but he did have some good films to his credits. He wrote the 1928 Harold Lloyd comedy, Speedy, which I actually saw at a 24-hour film fest um, some years ago. Very well done, silent comedy. Uh, he also uh, worked on 1934's Tarzan and His Mate, which is the best of the Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan films. That is a very good adventure film. Better as an adventure than Tartu. <laughs> oh. Is is that Tarzan and his mate, as in the British use of the, th- the term mate, as in, let's go to the pub, mate? No. Or is that like Tarzan and his primate mate, mate? No, okay. no, it's about Jane. Oh, okay. I, I prefer Tarzan and his mate. Right. Like they're down the pub, zombies attack maybe. I don't know. Right. And this was a, this was a pre-code Tarzan movie, so it's quite steamy. Gotta say, it would probably shock you if you watched it, what they were putting in a movie in 1934. What was he doing to his mate? Well, let's just say there's a whole nude skinny dipping scene. Oh boy, not a lot of loincloth there. No, no there isn't. And he also wrote the 1935 William Powell spy film Rendezvous, which you and I were going to tackle on the show and then we couldn't find a workable copy. That has happened more than once. Yeah, exactly. So this was a guy who definitely had a pretty successful career. He did get a um, uh, credit on the Oscar-nominated film Libeled Lady, starring Gene Harlow. And this was his follow-up to a 1943 film called Assignment in Brittany, which I read a synopsis of and sounds exactly like this movie. <laughs> so I've added it to our master list to cover in the future. Oh, so you've actually found the film through doing this film? Yes, that's right. Assignment in Brittany coming soon. People, we know, we know we're late to the punch here. We've been getting your letters. But yes, that film will be covered in the future. This guy, though, interesting. His career basically ended in the mid-50s. Could not find a reason why. I don't know if it was a blacklist thing. But uh, yeah, he, he lived another 20 years and uh, didn't produce anything past a TV episode in the mid-50s. That's a shame. Hmm. Well, I haven't seen Rendezvous or uh, the or the other film you said you did, Brittany film. So I can't actually I can't actually wade in too much. Maybe this is just a one off. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, and so that's kind of the behind the camera talent on this movie. Now, Robert Donat, who we'll talk about, I'm sure, for his star vehicle that is The Adventures of Tar Two. Uh, he was signed. No, this is the last time we we'll talk about him. <laughs> he was signed to MGM at the time. 
and had won an Oscar for Goodbye Mr. Chips, which they had put out. But he, during World War II, refused to move to Hollywood. They wanted him over there making movies, and he wanted to stay home in Britain. And so it actually caused like some real friction. They were bringing up contract disputes. There was lawsuits going back and forth about him. And so they settled the litigation with him agreeing to do two movies. And this was the first of those movies. So this was much more of a get-me-out-of-trouble film than a passion project that he was, you know, being kind of set up as a uh, icon for the studio with. Interesting. I wonder why he wanted to stay in England, because he wasn't obviously serving. No. No. I wonder what that was. And London wasn't exactly a safe place to be. Yeah. Maybe he had family there and he just wanted to be there with them. No, I get that. Yeah. Um, and so the film, as we mentioned earlier, was released as Sabotage Agent in Britain, renamed in the U.S. Possibly, it's theorized because of the two Hitchcock films, Sabotage and Saboteur, and they want to differentiate the titles. Um, the British release is five minutes longer and has one additional scene, which is another scene involving the mother's house just after a sustained bomb damage attack. I'm trying to think if I remember seeing that scene. Well, when you watched the movie, what opened with the title? Did it say Sabotage Agent or Tartu? Oh, Tartu. Yeah. Yeah. So you saw the US version. Okay. All right. Have you seen the additional scene? No. No, I haven't. I wonder if it's out there. I wonder if it's uh, trackable. Because this hasn't really had a a proper release. Uh, no. This is very much a From the Archives Spy Hearts <laughs> episode. <laughs> do- doing what we do best. That's Obscurity. right. Security. I couldn't find anything in terms of release for this film, uh, in terms of, you know, reception. Was it popular? I have no idea. When it comes to these World War II propaganda films, it can be really tough to say. This one, I'm not sure. I did find one note from Kinematograph magazine, which listed it as one of the most popular films in Britain in 1943 by mail-in vote. Okay. I mean, it's got a very British spirit to it. I can understand the Brits loving it. I think there's a... Danat does us a service, let's put it that way. Sure, yeah. I mean, I can totally buy that this would be very popular. 1943, we talked about it when we did Tonight We Raid Calais. Mm-hmm. And of the movie years, I keep track of every movie I've seen from each year. I have them all categorized, basically, on a Word document. It, it really is sad. But 1943 is one of the sparsest years period which makes sense given the sure. war mm-hmm. uh, but when you go through there it's a lot of like pulp films uh universal horrors cranking stuff out and propaganda films so uh it makes sense that like you wouldn't have had a huge number of big glitzy hollywood films so a movie like this probably would stand out that much more and it's strange that there are b movies even at this time because if there's such few movies it's, it's surprising that they would actually I say relegate something to being a B-movie. A B-movie wasn't necessarily a sign of lack of faith. It was just less money. Yeah, I think it was because these kind of poverty row studios also could just crank these things out over like a couple weeks. And it was just content for people to be able to go see in the theater. it's uh, It's the old school version of Netflix just putting out a bunch of random nonsense. Totally. Keep the people entertained, right? Content. That's right. And the top three for the year. Number one was This is the Army, which was a World War I musical comedy directed by Michael Curtiz and intended to raise U.S. morale at the time. 
and the proceeds went to the Army Emergency Relief. Sure. So this one, it makes a lot of sense why it's number one. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, For Whom the Bell Tolls with Gary Cooper, Spanish w- Civil War drama, which was an adaptation of the Ernest Hemingway book. And then number three was Song of Bernadette with Jennifer Jones about a young woman who experiences visions of the Virgin Mary. I have never seen this movie. It's on my list. It was a Best Picture nominee from that year. Uh, I'll get around to it one day. And if Metallica's For Whom the Bell Tolls isn't in your head right now, I have questions for you. Yeah, it is now. That's for sure. Uh-huh. I've driven it home. Great bass line. Best live Metallica song ever, right? Oh, I don't know about that. I'm a big one fan. Oh, that is a good call. It's one or the other, right? It has to be. One or the other. Nice. Uh, that's uh. right. I like that we've mixed some Metallica talking to the adventures of Tartu. <laughs> <laughs> he seems like the kind of guy that would like Metallica. Yeah. And just my final note, uh, Valerie Hobson, the female lead of this film. Mm-hmm. Scott, did she look familiar to you? I think she did, and I know why. Yeah, she played the schoolmistress in The Spy in Black. Of course, a knocklist inductee film. Yeah, it's got the knocklist stamp of approval. And she actually returns in the follow-up film that we've not been able to track down since. The uh, the U-Boat film. or also I think that's also called like Contraband. Yeah, that's right. And I think, again, that was one we perhaps looked at doing one week and then Googled like the YouTube version and it was so bad. That we were like, we can't make people watch this. And instead you get Tartu. That's right. That's right. Hmm. Well, we'll get to it because we really like that film and we like Comrade Vite anyway. So we will get round to Contraband at some point. But yes, uh, it, I, once I saw her, I recognized the face and then I did look her up on IMDb and it all clicked into place. Yeah. Well, that's enough Tar talking about it. Let's get to it. The Adventures of Tar 2. Was it a success for you? Oh, I like that rhyme. Not really. Um, oh, wow. Okay. The Adventures of Tar 2 reminded me a little bit of... I was mentioning Universal Horror before. Mm-hmm. And the Frankenstein movies are like the shining star of the Universal Horror series. Sure. And so you give me the first couple of those, I'm like, these are masterpieces. They're like 75 minutes. They never feel long. They never feel short. They feel absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. And you get to the third Frankenstein movie, and it's called Son of Frankenstein, and it's just under two hours long. <laughs> okay. And you're like, oh, oh, this feels like stretched out. Like I, I suddenly understand the perfection of the pace that was those first two Frankenstein films, despite the fact it looks very beautiful. That was kind of my take on, on Tartu. This movie feels, I think, really drawn out. Had absolutely no tension when I was watching most of it, and I... I could appreciate Robert Donat doing this bizarre performance where he's kind of jockeying between his the Stevenson self versus the Tartu persona, mm-hmm. which feels quite comedic. I mean, I guess there is somewhat, I don't want to say laughter, but there is kind of a comedic take on this character that he's delivering. He's larger than life. He, he is, he's a big character. That's right, yeah. Um, so I found, like, in terms of the performance, it was interesting. There was plot elements I thought were somewhat effective but i found this movie really dragged out a lot of it just kind of felt like going through the motions to kind of try to generate suspense but it never really got there for me so i found myself just more impressed with performances or individual moments Mm -hmm. than being swept up in the entire adventure i mean when we get to the big um one-man takedown of the facility i was just like uh this feels kind of perfunctory despite the fact i appreciate the set design 
Wow. Okay. This is an interesting start to the year. Because I completely disagree with you. Oh, nice. I will. I'll concede to start that I think it is overlong. I think there's a, a middle section that could have been chopped down, a twist or a twist that maybe could have been left out and you would have got to the punchline a bit quicker and made it a 90-minute film instead of a 100-minute film, perhaps, or 85 minutes versus 100. You could have excised a little bit from this film. But for me, I think it's sandwiched by two really great sequences. That escape from the uh, laboratory at the end feels like it's straight out of a Bond film. It does. You know, if you told me Dr. No was working in that uh, laboratory, I would have completely understood it. If you said Ken Adams had designed it, I would have completely understood it. It looks glorious, and this is 1943. If you're just listening to this review and you haven't seen the film, I completely understand if that's the case. Maybe just go and check out the last 15 minutes of this film. It's great. It's great stuff. The mountain explodes. It looks glorious. And then you go to the start, where he is diffusing a bomb whilst, you know, next to a kid in a bed who can't be evacuated from a hospital. It's great. It's tense and he's witty and cool. No, it's not. It is so not tense. What are you talking about? It's not about? tense at all. It's a guy who's just like sitting on a bomb. Like, oh yeah, I got this. Oh yeah, oh, that, that wire snip snip. Oh, hey, Billy, how's it going up there on the bed? Very good, sir. Very good. I hope I can one day dance again. <laughs> you will dance, Billy. Let me just unplug this bomb. <laughs> he is trying to get, make the kid at ease because there's a massive bomb next to him. He's trying the best to be witty and charming, to keep calm and carry on, as the saying goes. I just think it's wonderful. And the, I think the idea of sending him in is great. You've got this guy who's particularly skilled. He's like the Liam Neeson of W of World War Two. He has a particular set of skills and he will find you. And he you know does he, he, he the yeah you know, the Tartu character is large. That's fine. Yeah. But he has a great rapport with Valerie Hobson. I think that they are electric when they're together. I the only thing I only thing critique I have is that middle section that could be chopped down a little bit. But I did not think I'd be having this much fun. And for me, a lot of the times, the word adventure isn't necessarily true, but I had a lot of fun with this film. I, I have seen bits of this in other places. This story is also in Lance the Spy. Uh, yeah, no, that's very true. Yeah. Right, but Lance the Spy is a far lesser film than this. Also, uh, that assignment in Brittany or whatever it was called, mm-hmm. very similar setup. Okay, so I, I'm guessing there's probably a lot of, these World War II spy stories we haven't looked at yet where a guy is sent into Nazi Germany or something like that, Austria or, or wherever. Posing as someone else, yeah. Posing as someone else to to get into the war machine and take it down from inside. Great setup. And then what do you do with it from that point on? But, you know, I think the performances are great. I think the set design was great. I love some of the side characters that populate this world. The, the people living in the house, you've got the sort of German officer that's vying for Valerie Hobson's love at the same time. Otto. There's just a lot going on. Otto, yes. Poor Otto. Poor Otto. <laughs> he, he's offed by a statue. The, the, a small oof, and he's down on the floor. I mean, it's rare to see someone who's dead breathing so much, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> he, he really wasn't dead. He's just, just given up with it, really. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, 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 I'm not going in saying that this is, yeah, we'll get to the knock list. I'm not saying this is you know, uh, uh, the best film I've ever seen in my life. There's flaws for sure, but I had... No, that's what you're saying. No. That's what you're saying. Tartu reigns supreme. <laughs> I'll, I'll watch it Tartu more times, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but like, I, had, I just had a lot of fun with this film. I, I think 
Donat is, and maybe we'll slide into likes because I, I think I've got a lot more to say than you do in this section. Maybe you can head up the dislike section by the sounds of it. We can be, <laughs> we can be in charge of different sections. But your leading man, Robert Donat, charmed me in 39 Steps. He's gotten better since. He's able to switch between these two characters so effortlessly. Mm-hmm. It's wonderfully done. No wonder he won an Oscar for a film I haven't seen yet. His performance must be phenomenal. But this is absolutely great stuff. I can't take my eyes off the guy. Uh, but being able to just flip between these dual roles throughout the film, and you can track it too. It's not like it's like these tiny little micro steps in between. You can see him switching back and forth in mid-conversation. Yeah. And I just think it's wonderful. No, I, I am on the same page with you in terms of his performance. I actually thought he was a lot of fun. And... We were ridiculing them saying, like, laughter on the tagline. Mm-hmm. But now that I, like, think about it, he does a lot of, you know, Hail Hitlers in this film, like, when he's undercover as his character. And it's always delivered in a way where you can see the absurdity and that he is trying to make it funny. Yeah. Like, he's delivering it to these other, you know, SS characters, but he's doing a way where he's poking fun at them in a very subtle way where their characters don't recognize it, but the audience does. And I thought that that was actually very clever and very well handled. Well, it's interesting about the uh, the, the Hail Hitlers because it jumped out to me very early on in this film that it said a lot. Yeah. And so I actually tracked it in my second viewing. Do you want to know how many times it's said in the film? Um, okay, I'm going to try and guess. Okay. I'll say 36. You would have been smart to say 39 just because of the joke true flip that six upside down oh there you go there you go it was actually 29 oh okay so i was actually closer at 36 then you were i just think 39 would have been a better joke that you missed sure that's fair i left that one out on the field yeah you did you did you did but yeah i I think we could all agree uh that donat was great i'll add in another like because apparently i'm the king of likes on this film i think there's a lot of just cool twists I mean, there is one twist in the middle that I said could probably be taken out to just trim it down a little bit. But there's this whole idea of him becoming a... He is a spy and he gives himself up to the people he's staying in the house with to get them on side to find the the underground movement and help them and bring down this gas factory. But then there's also like he sort of hands himself into the foreman of the factory he's working on to say he's trying to work underground as a spy in, in their ranks to get you know get them on side to try and save a life and there's all these things he's doing and then at some point he's like double guessed as a spy there's all these little fun little twists within the film that i think are interesting and not overly complex and i think it doesn't require multiple viewings to you know piece it together like some spy films that have multiple twists so i commend the film for just having a very interesting plot and delivering it well well i thought the scene where he actually met up with the underground was very well done the gestapo scene yeah yeah, where they're posing as Gestapo, mm-hmm. and then he thinks initially he's approaching the underground, and then they are like, nope, you're caught, write a letter to your family, you are donezo. It's over, yeah. Yeah, and then the way that they reveal, no, we actually are the underground, and this was just a test, and you have passed it, and then they all just, like, break out laughing. <laughs> like, I don't know that I'd be laughing. Get get the wine! Bring the wine in! <laughs> oh, oh, let's have a merry time now! <laughs> you're having a breakdown there, like, oh, I thought I was gonna die! <laughs> I thought that scene was very well handled. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, pivoting over to my likes, I thought the connection he had with the Paula Palachek character, the young girl, the daughter of like the landlady Mm -hmm. of the building he's staying in, uh, was really well done. 
I actually thought that this was probably the highlight relationship of the entire film. Sure. Um, and the moment where, first off, he covers for her when she's murdered someone and taken the gun. Mm-hmm. And the way that feeds into a scene where they're in the factory, she's working there, and she sabot- like makes an effort to sabotage mm-hmm. the munitions, and he sees it, and someone else also sees that he's seen it. And so he has no option other than for her to be handed in and executed so he can be clear to pursue his mission. Yeah. I thought like this was the one moment I think in the entire film where I felt dramatic tension. Wow. As to what the characters were going to do. Okay. The rest of the movie just felt like a little more of a flat line for me. This moment, it kind of sparked to life. And I think the kind of the character of Paula looms over this film in a big way. And it's just a, you know, it's a supporting turn in the movie. She's in it for maybe half. But it just is so powerful. I thought that uh, Glynis Johns was fantastic. Did you recognize Glynis Johns? I didn't. What, what what do you have for me? Well, like 20 years later, she would play the mother in Mary Poppins. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? The, the one that's like, votes for women. No, no, that's I her. know. I just, I'd never put that yeah. together. She's wonderful in the film. And it reminded me a lot of another spy film that came out around about this time. I'm not sure on the exact year. Maybe it's a 30s film. But I think it was Confidential Agent about the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. With Charles Boyer and Lauren Bacall. Yeah, that's right. Where he he ends up being billeted in a house. And there's a young girl he's taken care of. And she's framed for something. And then ends up being thrown out of a window quite unceremoniously. But there's that kind of like looking after the younger person in the house connection there that I, that I noted. Yeah, it is interesting in both cases. It's these young girls that are in these houses that meet very grim ends. And that becomes like the main character's motivation. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it just happened a lot. Yeah. I don't know if that is considered fridging to the same degree when it's just like a child (laughs) in the building you're in. But uh, that's typically a term used more for like romantic interests. Yeah. But uh, yeah, um, it is a trope we've seen it twice so i can't say it's necessarily something that is a constant through these various genres but Mm. we'll see if we see it again i suppose well it's also like not just a a tiny little connection it's quite a big connection because thematically it's important to both films and and it's a character that is developed in both films it's not like it's just sort of an offhanded thing in one and we're connecting it to the other it's important in both so i I wonder what else uh, it does come up in because it must be just a a bit of a trope of the of the season yeah and i remember when we watched confidential agent that young girl going out the window was like a moment that had real horror to it and did like hang over the film as well. Yeah. Like it, you, you, the scream, the scream they use stayed with you at least for about as long as I remembered that film. Yeah. And that one comes out of somewhat nowhere. Whereas like this one, you have the setup earlier on. So it's a bit of um, setup and payoff where you have another workers caught like right at the start of the movie and executed so you know the ramifications of anyone who tries to sabotage the machines mm-hmm. so that when she's caught you know exactly uh, what Tartu has to like have going through his head as to what this girl's fate will be sure yeah absolutely uh, did you have any other likes you wanted to bring up I mean I'm with you in terms of the production design as my other like in the finale mm-hmm. I think yeah we could talk about it in dislikes maybe but like I think I have issues tone-wise with the finale in terms of the rest of the film. Sure. But in terms of, as you said, like kind of, it feels almost Ken Adams, but it also feels a little bit almost like Atomic Age sci-fi, which is going to come 10 years later. Like this huge, enormous set. Yeah. And him running around. Massive rockets and stuff like that in the background. Yeah, like going down these poles. Like it feels 
somewhat outlandish. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> the, the polls. I have to just jump in about the polls, right? Yeah. Do you... Uh, okay. Uh, sound the red alert, Cam. Uh, you're familiar, I imagine, with the Star Trek Next Generation episode, Darmok. Of course, yes. Uh, famously, they learned to speak in metaphor in that episode. Uh, and I wrote down uh, Tartu down the slide as a metaphor of wanting to get out of a conversation or get out of a place very quickly. And then I started expanding it to other spy films we've spoken about. Because another version of Tartu down the slide could be uh, Newman off the boat. Mm, yeah. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, what's another sort of spy metaphor you could use uh, to talk to the alien in Darmok? Connery riding the horse off the cliff. That's a symbol of uh, the the a opposite of excellence, I assume. That's right. That is a dark moment when everything just... <laughs> Give it up, folks. It's done. Uh, there's also uh, Roger Moore attempting re-entry. Oh, that's a classic one, though. Yeah, that's a good one. So uh, more metaphors, please. I want more spy movie metaphors. Uh, send them in, folks. Uh, at us and uh, let us know what you think. But jumping, but going like your sets, I agree. I, it was yeah. just a funny little side. I, but I would also add in the the um, the munitions factory set. I think was pretty mm-hmm. good too. It's not as elaborate as the laboratory, but it has a real sort of grounded earthiness to it that you feel like that is a real munitions factory where people are often marched outside and shot. Well, also, I like that the movie sets up the munitions factory, which feels like something that's recognizable mm-hmm. and. You know, it feels like kind of a blue-collar work environment for these people. Yeah. And so when you are sent there with Tartu to kind of get the full tour, you're like, yeah, I understand this this world. But you also know that he wants to get into this gas plant, this secret gas plant. And so when you actually get there, it doesn't feel like you are going from one similar-looking environment to another. It feels like, oh, this is a much more state-of-the-art uh, facility than we've seen before. It feels like mm-hmm. a character who's discovered something new that we couldn't have imagined. And maybe that's not realistic in terms of World War II, um, you know, plants, but in terms of visual language of storytelling, it's actually quite compelling to see. Well, it, it gives you that leap. You see the munitions factory, which is very down and dirty and real. Yeah. And then you get the sci-fi world of the laboratory. And it just, it, you know, you could read that as, as highlighting of, of just how advanced the German war machine is and just how much of a threat that gas that they were developing could have been if it wasn't taken out by our man Tartu. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, for sure. And I also want to just give a nod to the costume designer for um, Tartu's outfits. Mm. Those like striped suits and everything. I don't know what color they are were because it's black and white obviously but i just pictured them as being like basically joker suits like very outlandish very colorful uh they looked great they looked great i i wish there's there's some great production stills on imdb of the film and there's a great shot of him like a hero shot of him in the suit that uh i might uh steal there are actually some colorized shots from the film including the poster and it's inferred that that striped suit is navy blue and green oh that's perfect that is like very vibrant mm. yeah i mean the tartu character that is created in this movie you mentioned lancer spy earlier tell me something about the um alter ego in lancer spy i remember he looked like a pencil yeah that was about it he had a very straight he looked like a thumb like a giant thumb not a lot going on there not a lot no. going on and i think in this case while i have issues with the dramatic momentum of the movie 
mm-hmm. Tartu as a character created by Robert Donat is very distinct. And I will just say, bring back walking sticks and canes. Because, <laughs> boy, did he look great. He did. He did. Like, that was a, a dandyish look that was pulled off. I don't know how many actual spy missions in the real world consisted of people posing as cartoonish figures like this, but uh, I'd like to think several. Well, I I wish I had hair to put pomade in and then wear a lovely suit like that. That was some hair. Great stuff, wasn't it? It was. Now, I have a question. Mm. Did you believe it when they said he was 28 years old? Huh. No, I guess not. It didn't really rub me the wrong way because war and wartime does sort of age people very dramatically uh but it also wasn't an, in the war so yeah but also robert Donat, like we saw him in the 39 steps which is from i think 1935 mm. this is like eight years later i somehow doubt he was 20 in the 39 steps so i think they were kind of lowering the age a bit but you're right like people looked older in those days i'm sure the landlady of that building was probably like 32 <laughs> yeah she's younger than us both <laughs> the woman who played his mother was probably 50. Yeah, I completely buy that. And Cam, I'm just curious, you know, recently we were joked about, you know, you're single and ready to mingle. Are you going to be upping your game with a, a glorious mustache and the uh, the zoot suit with a walking cane? Not the mustache, but maybe I should be looking for a zoot suit and cane. Like, you'd stand out. You would stand out. Like, how long would it take... If I started posting photos all over the internet mm. of myself in this outfit about town before someone recognized it as Tartu. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would take a very long time. I th- oh, actually, the, the true question is what would take longer? Someone to get the reference to Tartu or for you to pull? <laughs> I'm going to say recognize Tartu for my own uh, <laughs> sense of confidence, but um, I don't know that anyone alive would ever reference or acknowledge a Tartu connection. See, this is the magic of doing the show, that we're finding these films that people just aren't talking about anymore and giving them, hopefully, a second life or a third life or a fourth life, depending on how many lives they've had. Not to overstate how important and how popular we are in podcast world, but just the fact that we're creating some conversation online about a film that's long dormant and i love it yeah a movie that has vanished basically off the face of the earth other than you know those late night people like us who stumble across them on streaming we interrupt this program to bring you a special report attention spy hards diehards independent podcasting much like the spy game requires considerable resources whether it's research equipment hosting or, of course, constructing a hidden moon base. We're putting out the call for your support. That's right. The Spy Hearts Patreon is the home to our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and The Debrief, where we activate our billion-dollar brains and predict how the spy movie news of today will shape tomorrow. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Hey, Scott, do you hear that? It's... The Batman, because this week we are going to look at 2005's Batman Begins, directed by Christopher Nolan. Swear to us, you're gonna listen. So accept your mission and hop in the Hellmobile today at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before Spectre agents intercept this broadcast, let's get back to the spy jinx.
Okay, Cam, you are the king of dislikes for this film. By Jove, I'm sure you've got a few. So why don't you lead us off? Well, I mean, I mentioned the pace earlier on. Um, I think for me, though, one of the big problems, and it's interesting it jumped out to you as being quite delightful, was the relationship with the Valerie Hobson character. Mm -hmm. This just did not work for me. And I found myself just like, I made a note probably about the two-thirds of the way through where it just I wrote underwritten Lanava. This character to me was just like, okay, like she's sort of just a plot like convenience. Yeah. And of course in a movie like this, you're going to have a romantic connection that's just like, mm -hmm. you know, goes with the territory. Sure. But I was like, this character isn't interesting enough. And I liked where they would have her go to the underground about him, but then she's kind of like, oh, well, I think he may be bad. I'm going to go to the SS and report him. Mm -hmm. It just felt like it was a character who was existing entirely just to convenience like the plot and to create some sort of drama mm -hmm. and i had a real issue i thought i think by the end like the the connection between the two of them never really worked for me i didn't really care for the way she was like set up in the house as this kind of prima donna and then it's a very quick pivot to oh no she's actually very close with the daughter paula and i just never bought any of it and we get to the end and she's going to be you know leaving with him on the plane she says no i can't go i have work to do which reminded me a lot of tonight we raid calais yeah which if you remember like the main female character of that movie who i think is a really interesting compelling complex character mm -hmm. you know helps the spy escape and is like i have work to do and i'm like oh my god I i've seen this before from a movie from this very same year and she's like i'm staying damn it and then, like, the other underground people are like, no, no, you're going. And she's like, okay, well, thank God, and makes out with Robert Donat and gets on the plane and flies away. And I was like, oh, this just feels like kind of the uh, the cheeseball version of a character like this versus something that is, I don't know, aspiring for a little more. I think the latter half of this film does her a disservice. And I'll agree with you that that, that half of the film isn't working for her. Once she figures out that he's on the side of good, he being Tartu. She basically disappears for the film. Yeah. From the film for about 20, 25 minutes, apart from maybe letting him know what's going on, which is just to, you know, to move the plot along basically and to add a little bit of tension during the final scene. Because if she didn't have, hadn't have done that, then he would have just gone and planted those bombs in the, in the laboratory and then just left. Mm -hmm. Like there wouldn't have been any tension. So that's, that's her dramatic purpose. But if you go back to the scene of them in the bedroom together or the scene of them at like the, nazi ball or whatever the hell that was <laughs> i think they had a, like a lot of like sparks going on between them. there's some witty back and forth that he's pretending to be tattoo and she's eventually breaking down his barriers and he's slowly letting more of the stevenson character come out as he realizes he can trust her over the the span of you know dancing then drinking then going out into the moonlight which i mentioned earlier yeah i think that scene's really quite charming it's just when and the the bit i said we think i think we could excise from the film is her finding out or assuming that he is actually a Gestapo officer that she needs to bring down and, you know, ends up dobbing him into the SS and trying to take him out that way. If you get rid of that bit, I think it just closes it a little bit more and it just, you'll lose 10 minutes from the film. And I think it would be a almost perfect bullet. But I'll agree with you. I think she is let down by the end of the film, but I still remain that I think there is some great sort of chemistry in those first two scenes. She also has maybe the biggest laugh of the movie for me. Go on. So I'll give her points for that, which is when she's trying to seduce Otto, the uh, dim-witted SS officer. Mm -hmm. And she says, uh, she goes to visit and she's going to leave and she goes, next time, 
I might even take off my hat. Oh, he just used my outro line. And he's like, oh, he's like fanning himself. And then later in the movie, she takes off her hat and he's like, hangs up the phone. (laughs) That actually was a pretty big laugh for me. I mean, it's Valerie Hobson. It's true. You would get hot and Harvey as she takes her hat off. It's true. It's true. I just like found that character somewhat frustrating when you had like kind of the, I don't want to say reality because it's a very like, you know, movie land style story. But like there was like a reality to the Paula character that I really bought into. And so when I had kind of this more, I don't know, it felt just like a Hollywood character, this Valerie Hobson Mm-hmm. lead it just did not click with me as much especially when you contrast her to the to the landlady in the building who barely says anything in the film mm-hmm. but you see what the war has put her through like there is sure. a reality to that woman's face in every moment her daughter dies and you just see like this woman who looks like she's like catatonic in that building and it's not acknowledged characters aren't like we need to cheer up you know this woman it's just someone kind of in the background speaking to kind of the fabric of what people would have been going through during the war. And then I kind of have this, you know, glamour girl character that's, I don't know, manufacturing drama. And I just didn't really care for it. Well, she's, you know, playing the socialite, trying to weasel her way into the Nazi party to get information and give to the underground resistance. I completely get what she was doing. And many people did do that during the war. They used their looks and status to try and help their own nation. Mm Mm-hmm. I I do I I understand your your quibbles with it and I think they're perfectly valid but I my only point I was saying is I think they had good chemistry at the start and I, and I think that is true and I think of you 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 mentioned tonight we raid Calais I think about the Lee J Cobb character in that film who again has seen the sort of the 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 truth of war mm-hmm. which is what you could compare to the landlady I think they both serve that sort of purpose to really give you an insight into sort of the cost of war which is actually where i'm going to pivot into my dislike of the film right and you've mentioned it which is tone Mm, yes and we've we've taken the mickey out of it a little bit by saying oh it's a rip roaring laughter that the man from wherever i've forgotten already (laughs) the balkans you know the mystery man of the balkans who is tartu what is tartu the rip roaring uh was it lots of thrills lots of laughs and then you've got moments of the you know the the lady's daughter being taken outside and shot Mm mm-hmm unceremoniously you've got uh you know london destroyed the blitz at the start of the film it's not a rip-roaring laughter time i mean much as britain got on with it there was tragedies every day it was not a good time to be living in london or in england or the world frankly during world war ii Mm -hmm. and so this film wants to have its cake and eat it and I think at times it is successful doing so, but for the most part, I think it probably should have just picked a tone and stuck with it. I think it works when he's playing Tartu. Yeah. And you're contrasting that against, you know, the dim-witted Otto and characters like that. It makes sense how someone who comes across as kind of this flighty dandy of a character is able to somehow blend in despite the fact he would stand out in most rooms. Mm-hmm. I think that works. But to me, it was more the climax of the movie where suddenly he turned into like this one-man army taking down this entire operation by himself. And I was like, this doesn't, this doesn't line up for me with what I've seen so far, where you have all these people kind of occupying various levels. You know, you have the Valer- Valerie Hobson characters you know, meeting with the underground. You have mm-hmm. the individuals working in the munitions factory, these women who are trying to take part in these very small acts of sabotage that are then dying for them. Yeah. 
And then you have him doing this one man, um, punching people and running around this facility, gunning them down. I like how they shoot at him like a billion times and he shoots once and they fall down. It's it's Star Wars, you know, it's that sort of thing. That's, yeah. They're all missing their shots, but Han Solo is a dead aim. Yeah, it's totally like the old serials. Mm. And I'm like, okay, like, again, I go back to the set design from the likes section, which I did really appreciate, but it also felt like it turned into a very silly movie at yep. that point. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, I don't know that this works. Maybe this just speaks to when it comes to these propaganda films. I really prefer something like Tonight We Raid Calais. Sure. Which I just found gripping. And it's from the same year. And it looks a lot better than this movie as well. The cinematography in that movie was just masterful. Mm -hmm. Whereas I would say this is more kind of standard fare. It doesn't stand out, but it's not uh, It's not bad. It's just kind of, you know, point and shoot kind of stuff. But no. I just found when we got to that ending section... You know, throughout the movie, I, may, I always make asterisks next to points I want to bring up on the show. We got to that finale, and I just had like a string of them down the entire finale about, you know, awkward punching and oh, yeah. catwalk sets and uh, him doing the Indiana Jones move between the two doors that are closing. Mm -hmm. And him, I guess that's kind of a Han Solo thing as well. It just felt like, okay, we have suddenly turned into just a full-on serial, and it's not working for me. And then we get the plane escape where they like... Have him by himself run into a room full of, uh, you know, SS, hold them all up with one gun, and then run out and just bar barricade the door as they fly away. And I'm like, this feels like way pulpier than a lot of what the rest of the movie was trying to do. Yeah, I completely agree with you with that. I can't, I can't fight this film's corner on that side of things because I brought it up. I think it, the tone is all over the place. And, you know, specific moments you called out there, especially the escape sequence, could be seen as very, very silly. And it is. I mean, the, the fact that he, he is basically Bond. He is a one-man army running around blowing that place up. It's like the intro to Goldeneye, in a sense. Like, he's just leaving the detonators and then just blowing the entire base up by himself, more or less. Yeah. Or even, like, something like a Flint movie, which is much more, like, broadly comedic. Sure. And, and you know, if you wanted a bit more of the reality to it, you, you could have done more and done what, say, you keep mentioning tonight with Ray Calais, I'll use that as a touchstone. And people who haven't seen that film, I'll try and explain it. But in that film, your protagonist has to do a, an act of sabotage to bring down, to basically light up a, a, a an area so it can be bombed by mm -hmm. bombers going overhead. But one thing that happens is there are other saboteurs distracting during that time to buy time. You could have done that at the same time here. The underground of that that area could have distracted the Nazis a little bit or done something at the entrance of the laboratory or something to get the guards away so Tartu could go do his stuff without being interfered with and then have a shootout on the way out, something like that. Whereas he basically does he runs rings around the entire German army mm. blowing this place up. And it does seem a little bit silly when you're contrasting against you know, the people being lined up and shot earlier on in the film. You can't be wacky and deadly serious. It would be like Black Book having a moment of wacka wacka towards the end of you know someone slipping on a banana peel or something. It just doesn't tonally work together, and it is incongruous when you look at it as a whole. And so yeah, I I, I think it misses it misses its mark in that sense. I think also tonight we read Calais, and I'm not gonna like criticize this movie for this it's just something i appreciated in tonight we raid calais that's more absent in this film mm -hmm. which is like that movie very much recognizes like the heroism of these women mm -hmm. who take these various roles in the war effort and this one like 
it sort of sets them up in the munitions factory committing sabotage, but ultimately it comes down to uh, Robert Donat and then the all-male underground uh, kind of just making everything happen and calling it a day. And I know that this is more of a, um, you know, somewhat more of an adventure film, I suppose, or an mm-hmm. action film with Robert Donat, more lighthearted. Uh, so I understand that it's not as interested in those aims, but I think like something like Tonight We Raid Calais would have made like the Paula character much more of an impactful character in terms of her overall importance to the story than this movie does. Whereas it's a motivation for um, for the Stevenson character once she dies, but he's got it all figured out. Don't worry. Whereas the spy in Tonight We Raid Calais, he had a mission to get done, but he needed help mm-hmm. and women played a crucial role in helping him succeed. Sure. Yeah. I, I think that was a uh, probably better handled than the underground just sort of magically turning up, pretending to be the Gestapo at the end and like, oh yeah, we've got a laboratory that's conveniently here for you. Yeah. And I mean, the thing with Calais was that was very much the focus of the story they wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. Not so much the case here. So it's not a criticism, more like something I just appreciated there that I felt the absence of when I was watching this movie. Sure. And I mean, I, I kind of tackled my other dislike early on where just saying, I think the pace drops off in the middle bit where I would take that few scenes out to trim it down a little bit. But one thing I will add, and we did say this at the top of the episode is it hasn't got great distribution. The video, mm-hmm. the version you watched wasn't very good. There is an okay version on YouTube, but that's not an official release by whatever studio owns this film. And so I think in terms of a dislike or something that would mark it down is it there isn't a clear way of watching this in the in the format it was should be presented in i'm not saying it should be a criterion 4k collection re-release but a dvd would be nice well i think that's one thing that's just happened over the course of this podcast is you and i have um come across a number of films that are really have a lot of merit, whether they made the knock list or not, but have a lot of merit mm-hmm. that uh, is worthy of them having something of an audience or at least being distributed in a way where film lovers could find them. Mm-hmm. And they're just gone. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with quality a lot of the time. Some of them, yes. <laughs> Some of these movies we've looked at were terrible and they're better left just kind of, you know, on the sidelines. But there's no real... Um, Awards aren't given for how good you are when it comes to distribution. It tends to be more just who has the rights and, you know, how it shakes out that way. Because we've watched a lot of good movies. Uh, Tonight we raid Calais, Five Fingers, you know, this film you really enjoyed. Um, These movies are deserving of, you know, at least like a a decent Blu-ray out there or something. Like a streaming on some sort of service. Something that you're not watching compromised takes on them. No, uh, where where other people like ourselves have had to repost them on YouTube every couple of years just to get them still available for people. Because I imagine this is the sort of film that was replayed quite a lot when films were being played in television in like the 60s and 70s. It feels like the sort of filler film you have played. So there must be a lot of copies out there. I don't know. I don't know who owns the rights to this film. Uh, but I think that's just a shame that we can't have a definitive version of this film. And I'll just throw it back to you before we go to any final notes, Cam, because you had some sort of strong dislikes at the start. Is there anything that we haven't mentioned in the dislikes section you want to bring up? I don't think so. For me, it's that pace issue in the middle half Mm -hmm. where I just legit almost began to get checked out on it. It just was not pulling me through. And I began to think like this is a kind of a pulpy adventure story, I suppose. Sure. Um, Like keep it 
quick paced. I think like a movie like this, 90, 95 minutes, and you're kind of pulling the person, you know, the viewer through the movie would have worked better than this kind of, like, I just felt like I was watching a lot of shoe leather in this film. Sure. Of Tartu walking around. There was no real sense of rising danger the way that you could watch, you know, say like a Hitchcock film or Five Fingers, where you are starting to see and experience more and more tension as you go because the lead character is getting in over their head and other people are kind of getting aware as to that something's not quite right. I just never felt that in this movie. And I found that frustrating. And it felt like we were just kind of going through the paces to kind of get towards an action climax. I'll I'll bite back a little bit. I think there are moments of that later in the film. I, I will particularly call out the moment where he pretends to be drunk to get to be noticed by the underground he walks out and then is surrounded in the street by people we don't know who they are mm. and that's actually quite a nice shot like in terms of the cinematography of this film there isn't a lot you pick on we'd say the sets but that shot there where he's surrounded in darkness and people just appearing out of the corners of the street to take him down or to save him we don't know I, there is a mo- moment of genuine tension well that moment is actually where the movie goosed me again and I was paying attention, which is why I cited that scene in my likes. Like that was something that I thought was actually quite effective. But leading up to that stuff, I was getting a little, little weary of Tartu. Are you saying he's like, uh, I'm pretending to be drunk? Scene in the bar was a was a bit too much for you. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's not the most uh, subtle of um, spy performances. No, although he did say uh, he wasn't a spy. That's true. That's true. Well, I suppose I'll go to final notes. And one of the ones I brought up earlier, so I'll throw it to you first. Any sort of final notes or observations you want to bring up about the adventures of Tartu? In all caps, science montage. Ah. (laughs) I love that when he was at the gas factory um, and uh, he's got like the goggles. They're doing close-ups of beakers and formulas (laughs) and it's spinning around. And I'm like, oh my God, we are sciencing our brains out here. Uh, I very much enjoyed that little uh, montage. Is, is that what you feel like when you're editing this podcast? <laughs> There's a lot more tears. <laughs> Fill the beakers. Yeah, exactly. Everything gets blurry just from the tears falling on the camera. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, but th- that is a great moment and did get a chuckle from me both times I watched it. I will add in... Uh, I mentioned sort of the Bond-esque elements, but the whole laboratory scene, the escape is, if you told me that was Bond escaping, I would have completely bought it. Especially like Dr. No era. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And the other thing I want to say about this film in the notes and sort of bring up as a discussion point is I'm not a big fan of remaking films Mm -hmm. in general, especially good ones. But there are times when I stumble upon films that I like, but I feel like they have potential to be better. Sure. Which is, this is one of those films. And I'm not saying there's going to be a, re- a remake of The Adventures of Tartu. Uh, I don't think that's coming. Unlikely, unlikely. Uh, unfortunately. But the bare bones of the story, I think, is quite intriguing. And in different hands, and maybe finessed a bit more, maybe pick a side between the sort of light, comedic, swashbuckling adventure as this guy you know, sneaks into the Nazi uh, territory and tries to take down a bomb factory. Or you go with the, the gritty spy thriller side of this with the realities of war. You pick a lane and do it with a, a sort of modern take. I think it could be quite interesting. I do think there 
would be something there. I don't know how they would handle the tone of it, though, if they were to make it now. We tend to be much more tone-specific yeah. in modern movies, and to have a character who's playing this colorful dandy in a World War II film, I, I don't know that they would necessarily be able to pull that off as well these days. Like They might play it much more comedic, mm-hmm. or they would have a lot of dark psychological insight into Tartu over the course of the film, which maybe you don't want when you're trying to have these kind of like fun romantic capers. I don't know. I, well, I think you'd go gritty. I think if you were doing it, you'd go the darker side of it and you would highlight some of the darker moments that we've actually enjoyed. Like you say about the abduction where he's taken by what he thinks is a Gestapo. It's a really dark moment. Yeah. The, the munitions factory scene where he is almost discovered again another dark moment those are the things you think you zero in on as a filmmaker and go these work let's do more and this unlikely hero that's sent into you know be a spy is exactly the plot of something like the courier very true yeah yeah i mean do i want a serious dark take on um tartu i'm not sure that i do but i guess it could be interesting uh you probably wouldn't call it the adventures of tartu though Probably not. We might go with sabotage agent or something along those lines. Yeah, or or um, you just really confuse people at home and call it Tar Two. Oh, <laughs> we have scenes of him conducting at certain points. Yeah, people think it's uh, it's a follow up to the recent. I think it's been nominated for a few awards already. But yeah, Tar and just really confuse people when Benedict Cumberbatch shows up as a dandy. Where's Kate Blanchett? Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, well, you could do that if you wanted to. I'd be up for that. Yeah, she could play Lenova, I suppose. Or um, if she wants to go more of a, you know, more weathered supporting role, um, she could play uh, Anna, the the landlady of the house, who here was played by Phyllis Morris. Yeah, there you go. Hey, we've just pitched Tar Two. There we go. Um, one thing that stands out. It's a little bit of a darker note, but something that I think is more distracting to a viewer now mm-hmm. than would have been in 1943 was we are told that the Nazis are engineering a new weaponized gas. Sure. And knowing what we know now about the Holocaust and things like that, you can't really bring up Nazis and gas to me where I suddenly go like, oh, oh, like that connection is immediately made Mm -hmm. and kind of hangs over the movie in a way that not like people would not have known in 1943. They're just like, oh, for the battlefields. And they mention at one point, oh, we're going to drop it on London. And you're like, yeah, it's much more of like a, you know, kind of like war era doomsday plot kind of stuff. Sure. Versus like kind of the grim reality that I think we would carry just as viewers going into the movie now. Well, from what I understand of, of World War Two, there was a propaganda machine going on from Nazi Germany and there was a propaganda machine going on at home. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were sort of caught in the crossfire of not knowing what to believe. It was only afterwards when the atrocities were really highlighted of, of the Holocaust that we knew what happened. So, yeah, I can see them doing this whole gas angle in this film. Because it's just something that feels fantastical. Yeah. Like, this can't this can't happen. Obviously, we know it did and does and still does around the world in some places. You know, gas like sarin gas is still used. Um, it's banned, but people still use it. And it's disgusting. And it's an atrocity. Um, I don't know if you did that now. Would you use that? Maybe you'd use just a nuke. Yeah. Maybe, they, maybe they're developing a nuclear bomb. And we stop them and then... Sure. You know, it's, it's not factually correct, but you could play something there. I don't know. Or like the rockets from Operation Crossbow. 
a v the v2s or whatever they were i think yeah something yeah. Like that. yeah you could do that like a mega v2 it, it, you know you it, this is doesn't have to be factually correct no and you know you think about a movie like notorious which mm-hmm. we loved from 1946 three years after this where um the claude rains character in that was associated with the creation of the zyklon gas yeah and you're like this is one year after the war has ended and them kind of reckoning with the atrocities. Mm-hmm. Whereas a movie like this, no criticism whatsoever, but they just, they didn't have that information at their disposal, but it does kind of carry weight when you hear it mentioned in the movie now. I agree. And I, I think uh, uh, another look at this in a modern day lens would be interesting, but I think it's too risky of a time in Hollywood for them to be doing anything like this. Yeah, totally. Just not happening. But uh, speaking of it's all happening, Cam, it's knock list time. The reason we are here is the adventures of Tartu making the knock list. The question goes to you. What do you think? It's a no for me. I think very clearly just from my overall review. Um, If anything, it just gave me regrets that maybe I should have fought a little harder for Tonight We Raid Calais, which I think at this point is the best of these propaganda films we've looked at. I hadn't really sat down and sort of thought about what is my favorite of the bunch. But now that you say it, maybe that really is the best. I mean, there's better movies that came out of the World War II era, but they were more of like your A pictures. Whereas I think something like Tonight We Raid Calais, which is very much created to um, promote um, support for the war effort. You know, it was like a true propaganda film. I think it was like maybe the best one. Ministry of Fear has elements of that, but it's much more of a, uh, you know, prestige film. Yeah, that is that is fair. That is fair. Well, there's a no from you, and I'm going to be honest. I really enjoyed this film, but I didn't enjoy it enough for it to make the knock list. This, is this for me, sits in some territory like, I'm not saying it's comparable to, but territory like The Man From U.N.C.L.E. Sure. I had a good time with it. There are bits I like. If you told me you wanted to revisit it for some sort of, we're doing a special on war films. I wouldn't have any hesitation going back to watch this film. I think Robert Donat is an absolute treat and I would follow him into battle. He is a charming man (laughs) and presents himself as such. But is it one of the great spy films of all time? No. But if you like World War II propaganda films or if you like watching films of that era or if you like Robert Donat, I'd say stick it on. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting uh just to compare this to 39 steps and see him giving Mm -hmm. very different performances in spy films yeah uh hopefully he has one more that we haven't stumbled across yet and we can do a a trifecta of robert donat films that'd be nice uh nothing's popping to mind but who knows we'll we'll scour the imdb folks but uh there you go the adventures of tartu two no's and as such it is not making the not clear the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified I'm tattooed out, Cam. So what are we talking about next week? Yes, Scott. New year, new Lacare review for you all. We are going to look at the 1967 drama, The Deadly Affair, starring James Mason, uh, based on the John Lacare novel, his first ever, actually, Call for the Dead. Yes, folks, we got your emails. Most of them about Tartu, I understand, but there are a few more about wanting us to do a few more Lacare adaptations. So here we are, starting off 2024 with a big one. James Mason coming back to the show, and we got even more emails from you saying that they want less of us and more of people who know what they're talking about. So we're bringing 
one of your favorites back, Mr. Jeff Quest, Spy Wright himself, is coming back to the show next week to guide us into the deadly affair. So, folks, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we take a look at 1967's The Deadly Affair. And if you want to help support the show, you heard the Alfred earlier on, join us over on our Patreon. Multiple different options of how you can help support the show. We're currently saving up for a website and every single penny helps. And we thank you all for those who are already supporting the show. Plus, you'll gain access to over 50 bonus episodes. There'll be a link in the show notes below. And uh, make sure you follow us discreetly, as always, on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, folks. Cam, I have a bone to pick with you. Yes? Why aren't my boots saddle-soaked? (laughs) 